You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Welcome to Farm to Tabor. Today we've got a very special guest, Josh Specht. He is a historian and he just wrote Red Meat Republic all about big beef. How ranching in the United States actually started out with giant corporate ranches, then got taken over by family operations, and is still dominated by family ranches to this day. A little backwards from how we think agriculture stories work. He also digs into how the Chicago meatpacking industry happened, how ranching plays a big role in evicting native people from the U.S. plains, and not always in the straightforward way that you would think. And also how powerful labor movements actually helped giant meatpackers stay entrenched. It's such a great example of one of those things where I think most of us think we know the story of what happened, but reality is so much weirder than the storybook version. My name is Josh Specht. I'm a historian of 19th century America, and I'm a continuing lecturer at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. As you can hear, I'm, I'm from the U.S., and this year I'm based in South Bend, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So um, you just made a book, and we should talk about that because it just came out, and, uh, and I just read it, and I was excited. Oh, <laughs> uh, hooray. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk about the book, especially because you know, you know so much about contemporary issues, and this is very historical, although I hope it speaks to current concerns and interests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was really interesting how much um, rich people judging poor people's diet came up because I feel like that's been a very consistent theme in U.S. U.S. food discourse for the past couple of centuries. And I was like, oh, man, this is a this could have come straight out of a Michael Pollan book. <laughs> I'm, glad, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you talked about brought that up because I think people haven't really talked to me so much about that or haven't heard about that. But I think that's really important how we talk about diets. Mm-hmm. Really shapes the a the kind of way we want to relate to how we produce our food, but also I think there's this class thing and and racial implications running through all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, one of the things I thought was really interesting is, um, and again, you hear a lot of echoes of this today, is kind of like how dare the poor people eat, you know, good meat, and um, yeah. and it's funny because like if you look at public health back at that time, um, the working class was living in very crowded, very cold, like not a lot of heating, crowded, filthy conditions, and they're doing hard physical labor for a long time per day. And so this is one of those scenarios when like accessible animal protein, like is a life or death situation, (laughs) you know, um, like tuberculosis was rampant and nutrition is one of the things that makes somebody susceptible or not. And so it's like, you know, obviously there are problems with the meat distribution system, but it's really easy to see why there is so much buy-in from the working class because they needed this to survive. For sure. I mean, I try to make that a theme in the book as I try to step back and remind people like, you know, I'm talking about how this entire system is founded on, on certain forms of exploitation and violence, but this is producing something that not only makes people happy, but is actually very important. Right. And I think that's, it's really important when we think about how to talk about the excesses of the system that we recognize just how much of an achievement it really is and, and why it's important. Right, yeah. Um, and I, I feel like you have some echoes of it today, especially when I was kind of talking about how rich folks were really upset that poor people were buying steak. 
not just like any old part of the cow, but they were buying steak. Right, steak. Yeah, and they're like, there's all these cheap cuts of the cow that you could eat instead. And what kind of goes unsaid in all of those discussions, you know, when, when rich people are talking about poor people diets, is preparation time. Because yes. a steak, you can grill super fast and it's ready to eat pronto. Um, for a roast or something that's tough, it needs low, slow cooking um, and if you're pulling 16-hour shifts in a factory, <laughs> that's yeah, not exactly. going to happen. Like, they don't have crockpots. And, you know, like, rich people had a cook, basically, who could make roasts for them. And yeah. uh, and you don't have that if you're living in a tenement. Like, you, especially if you're doing, like, what, the 12 to, like, 16-hour days that folks were pulling back then. Like, you don't have time to cook shit. Um, yeah, or energy. I mean, right? Yeah. I think there's like not a lot of sympathy for how tired and exhausted people can be. Yeah, yeah, and that's even the case just for like service sector jobs today. And like, you have a lot of people basically working that many hours because they're pulling two or three jobs, um, and you know that's just loss of energy from being on your feet and interacting with people all day. But then you also add to that like hard physical labor that folks were doing back then, and, and to some extent today as well. And it's just just striking how tone deaf and ignorant. Um, rich people's discourse about what poor people should be eating really was and is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is something I, I struggle with as I thought about the book because if we, if I think about any way of kind of thinking about how to address some of the concerns I raise in the book, it's it's all of the solutions or ideas often are very class inflected, mm-hmm. and it's 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 developing either a way for certain people to buy com- buy their way out of complicity in the system, mm-hmm. or it's you know kind of can attacking people for essentially their choices or things that they're forced into consuming. Yeah, and I think I even got to this in, in the book some. I talk about this this pamphlet about meat versus rice, and it, mm-hmm. it is unfortunately advocating exclusion of, of Chinese immigrants from the U.S., but the argument the workers are making is very revealing mm-hmm. in that they argue that they're being dragged down. They'll, they'll be reduced from the standard of a, of a beef diet down to something else due to labor competition. And while right. it's an extremely racist pamphlet, I think... I think the, the assumptions in there are reflective of a broader debate about the place of beef in people's diets. Yeah, and just, you know, kind of, you know, social power through the medium of food, you know, is kind of some more of what we see in the meatpacking story here. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's interesting how immigration from places that, that don't eat beef quite as much or don't value beef in the same way has really changed the story. Because what mm-hmm. I found with my story is a lot of kind of recent immigrants from Europe or people or children of them, mm-hmm. right? The key thing is that beef is something they can have all the time. Their, their preference for it doesn't really change. It's that availability. Right. Yeah. Um, and something that was kind of interesting, so I've worked a little bit in aquaculture, um, and particularly mm-hmm. with farms that grow sturgeon for caviar. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and every time you kill a sturgeon for caviar, there's about, you know, five to ten times as much sturgeon meat as a result. Um and there's so not, can you effectively farm sturgeon? You can. It's actually oh, they're they lend themselves pretty well to aquaculture. They're they're pretty chill fish. You just want to chill out. Like they don't want to swim in circles constantly the way some more active fish do. So they uh, <laughs> they farm pretty well. Um, like uh, they're, they're just you know they're like a very. I thought they grew very slowly. They do, yeah. So that's the other thing is like they're they're very efficient in turning their feed into sturgeon, um, uh, but it just takes a long time. So anyway, um, what was I saying? So anyway, so one of their big issues on these caviar farms is like, okay, we have a market for the caviar, but what do we do with all this meat left over? And sturgeon meat is, sturgeon meat's amazing. Like it's, it's really dense. uh, It's really firm. It's like, uh, and really mild flavored kind of white meat. And it, it 
it cooks basically like swordfish, right? So it's really versatile. You can kebab it. It's fantastic. But just nobody really knows what to do with it in the U.S. because it's never been a part of our food um, right. dialect. Um, but Eastern European immigrants, kind of around the time that your book is occurring, like turn of the century, 1800s, um, they ate a lot of sturgeon back home. And at that time, there were a lot of caviar fisheries actually in the U.S. Like they were just slaughtering U.S. native sturgeon by the millions and sending the caviar to Europe. And so there's all this meat left over that Americans didn't know what to do with. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they like to eat beef. And the Eastern European immigrants are like, yeah, sturgeon every day. Um, (laughs) And they called it Albany beef. Which is oh, interesting. Wow, I got. Yeah, I got. I want to learn more about this story. This is interesting, <laughs> though, because of course, in that sense, that sturgeon meat, as it were, is is, a, is essentially a byproduct of this of this other kind of production. Yeah. And I imagine that's like a key source of the viability of these producers, which is a bit analogous to beef. Yeah, yeah. Um, like the, I think the caviar alone, because it's such a high end product, you know, would keep the industry afloat. But it was like, cool. There's this awesome, thriving market for the other, you know, three hundred pounds of the fish. Chuck it, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that has nothing to do with beef. <laughs> well, I <laughs> mean, it talks about some of the same trends, I think, actually. So yeah. I mean, I guess that's something poor people could eat without any kind of censure from the upper class because the upper class just didn't really see it as food. So. But then, it, then, then, of course, the challenge becomes that you know you have to to represent your progress. You have to eat, you want to eat things that kind of reflect on the broader community, and so I right. think often that creates pressure. Uh, at least maybe with the children of people in that category to start to consume more of a, you know, mainstream diet in a way. Right, yeah. Um, and for sure, like, it only took a couple decades for, like, native U.S. sturgeon to get basically eradicated. So that didn't last too long. Um, uh, yeah, but boy, while it did, cheap meat, so. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the story, you know, one of the things I talk about at the end of the book, this kind of meat riot, around access to beef. And then one of the lessons I learned from reading about that more was, and I mean, thinking about my own preferences, you know, it's not easy to just switch. You kind of have your preferences and those, those evolve very slowly. And Mm -hmm. so people really, you can't just, there are abundant things that might be affordable, but then many people won't kind of turn to them, understandably. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I don't know. It was just kind of really interesting to watch, um, again, how much of the way we talk about food today, like poor people eat too much of this, poor people eat too much of that, that's why they have these health problems, um, is really kind of rooted in like 19th century class drama. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, well, I think nutrition science is an outgrowth of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah um, actually I had a podcast interview with Michelle Allison, a nutritionist, like several months ago. Um, mm-hmm. And she was like, listen, a lot of the nutrition science we have because it's very difficult to do properly controlled studies and everything like so much of what we think is nutrition is really kind of pseudoscience and a lot of the yeah like a lot of the quote-unquote conclusions we have are kind of like hypotheses made before the fact just based on our class drama and our class drama informs the questions that we ask um so it's it's, oh that's so interesting i gotta go back and listen to that oh yeah it's just really hard to kind of like make out what's really going on because there's so many other things that influence outcomes like chronic stress if you have a lot of cortisol in your body like you metabolize differently so how much of poor people's health problems are from quote-unquote poverty diet versus like the stress of being poor you know (laughs) Mm, yeah well i think about the dynamic where it's kind of like the people who are when you think about your how people 
you one talks about food choices. It's kind of like people you see as peers. It's mm-hmm. it's purely an aesthetic kind of thought, mm-hmm. and then people who are poorer than you, it often becomes this purely nutritional thing. Yeah. So we kind of tend to downplay aesthetics when it comes to kind of thinking about people who are you know less well off than us. Yeah. Well, I have to wonder, like you know. You kind of made some mentions of how nutrition science kind of evolved out of like how do we tell the the poor what to eat just to you know just enough to keep them alive and working for us and yes. not really worry about aesthetics. Um, I have to wonder how much of that was starting to develop during the slavery period too, because that was definitely something that slave owners were like obsessed with is like scientific, you know, management yeah. of people. So. I think you're right, for sure. I think that's a, it's a similar kind of trend and a similar kind of moment. I mean, yeah. thinking about kind of workers as a category and the way that it's such as a class leads to this kind of thinking where you try to systematize. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, it's kind of funny because I think there was a mention in the book of like, we're not sure if it was from uh, scientific management of workers or from people talking about nutrition science for livestock. And I was like, guess what? There was a time when you could be both. So... Yeah. Good times. Um, like, that was a period in U.S. history that was really not that distant at all at this time, so. Yeah. So I feel like you draw from historical stuff to think about current contemporary stuff a fair bit when you talk about when I see your stuff on Twitter in various places. Yeah, my husband's a historian, so it just kind of, like, uh, off. <laughs> okay, now now the, the truth comes out. There I it see. is. Yeah, I stole his brain. Um <laughs> No, so, like, uh, I feel like a lot of what happens in agriculture, there's kind of a historical explanation that's given. And, you know, like, you're out there working and talking to farmers, and they're like, oh, we do it this way because blah, blah, blah. You know, um, here's what happened. This is why we're like this. And then you look back in the primary sources, and that's not what was happening at all. So there's a lot of myth-making, and I find it super useful to actually go back and look at the time period and kind of ground truth that stuff. And where there's not a match, that tells you that someone is actively myth-making, and there's a reason. So... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was trying to do, was was to think about what, A, my account of what happened, but also think about how those myths kind of naturalized the system or justified it. Yeah, exactly. Um, we should talk about kind of like the land and cattle speculation boom that like started off the beef industry and then also the book. There's a lot of interesting stuff going on there, and I'd love to explore that. I mean, one of the things I talk about is, and I've, I've thought some interesting parallels to stuff today, but in the beginning of the book, I talk about kind of a boom in these land and cattle companies during the late 1870s, early 1880s. So coming out of the American Civil War, uh, particularly on the West and the Plains, uh, in particular the Southern Plains, places like Texas, there was a lot of instability because the kind of U.S. Army had been distracted. Uh, American Indians decided it was a chance to kind of resist encroaching U.S. authority. Mm-hmm. And then in the early 1870s, there's a violent process of basically wresting control of the plains from American Indian peoples like the Kiowa and Comanche. Um, and, and after that, there's a, there's a kind of relative stability. And all this investment capital starts flowing in from the northeast of the U.S. and Europe. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it was land speculation. Ranching became a way to kind of use land until they thought it would be developed by towns and cities and settled farms. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, it was a process of essentially running ranches on a massive scale, Mm -hmm. um, a scale that hadn't really been tried before. I mean, it was was big business before, but this was a new attempt at scale. Mm -hmm. And in the book, I suggest that this leads to a boom and an ensuing bust that happens just as the Chicago Meatpackers are getting power. Mm-hmm. And this kind of helps jumpstart the national market for cattle, which is key to industrial beef. 
<laughs> yeah, that's it's it's so interesting because, um, like again, kind of coming back to the cultural stuff, like beef and ranching is such a central part of like American self-image and identity. And I feel like this history really kind of goes into explaining why, you know, like uh, we have to um, we have to go through this project of genocide, you know, so we can make beef. And then, you know, like you have to kind of justify that by really talking it up as a thing. And yeah, like that 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 period of like, I guess, like where the cowboys and Indians mythology came through was really kind of brief. Um but we're just we've been obsessed with it ever since for sure i mean i like to think about the, the key with ranching so i think ranching is the and beef is at the center of kind of american identity in my argument because it was so central to this process mm-hmm. of land dispossession and you know what people would have called frontier settlement mm-hmm. and so i think about ranching as kind of a tool of land occupation and, and american indian dispossession and a justification for so, like, the cattle are materially colonizing land, right. and the idea that ranching is, like, a, you know, productive use in the minds of Americans mm-hmm. is becomes the justification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting because you kind of talked about, you know, we have this mythology of, like, the open range is just the best thing ever, um, but really it was just a kind of a way to, like, basically, like, unleash cattle into native land and kind of, like, f*** up all the grass and, life and, the, and the bison. Um and yeah. when they're interfering with their stuff and like trampling their areas, like you're you're gonna lose some cattle to get eaten by the people whose stuff they're trampling, and that was used as an excuse to to go out and attack people. Yeah, I mean that was one thing that kind of surprised me when I first started researching this was just the fact that there was no assumption was ever questioned that you know, if if you've branded an animal and you believe you own it, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter in their minds. It's like wherever it goes, just out there, mm-hmm. it's justified. And if anyone kills it, that's on them. That's like a theft. Mm-hmm. And there was just no awareness about, you know, the movement of, of cattle. And it was, it found, I found it very strange at first. Yeah. Well, and it kind of, like, this history, again, like, just explains so much about the cattle industry today. Um, one of the issues that's happening right now, so there's a couple things. Um, there's kind of like a sustainable uh, ranching movement that's going on. Uh-huh. And what you have to do to like make that work is so at odds with us cattle culture because you have to move your cattle around like kind of conscientiously like okay they're gonna be on this patch of grass today mow it all down and then i'm gonna make all the cattle leave for like you know two weeks to two months however long it takes with your rainfall period like i'm gonna take them off there i'm gonna like move my cattle around consciously and that is so contrary to us cattle traditions uh yeah and it's it's really a lot more um has a lot more in common with like traditional pastoral herding where you're kind of traveling with your cattle. And uh, so that's a traditional method. That is not how American colonization went forward at all. Um, That was just kind of like, I'm going to take some cows. They're going to go wherever they want. And uh, I'll go find them in six to 12 months. Um, It's not, (laughs) whatever. Uh, It's not control movement at all. And so in order to like make it sustainable, you have to do that controlled ranching where you actually kind of tell them where to go and you make sure there's feed like in that path. Like it's such a gut level change. And they kind of, the the press that talks about doing this, like the trade press is constantly like, it's a paradigm shift. You have to think about it completely differently. Like, yes, it's traditional because your traditional ranch will keep going, but it's not going to work anything like it used to. And it's, it's, it's really a mindful for a lot of folks kind of trying to make that transition. Uh, anyway, carry on. 
Well, I was just curious. I mean, the thing I've, I, the, one of the, the key things I wonder about throughout the book and I, I struggle with is this question of scalability mm-hmm. and, and how, how much the way the system looks is a consequence of like scale. And so often when I hear about stuff today, I, do, I wonder like how, you know, is that, is that viable on a large scale? Something, um, this more of hands on this, this trapped or cattle. Yeah, I mean, actually, it scales pretty well because, like, um, like especially compared to a, fleet, a feedlot, actually, um, which is a different phase of cattle rearing, but it scales a lot better than a feedlot because with feedlots, like, you have to shovel food in and shovel poop out. So, like, depending on your scale, your equipment and your and or your time can change really dramatically. Um, with ranching, when you're moving cattle around in a controlled way, it's like you have basically using electric fences, and uh, I see. you just kind of open the gate, and they walk themselves through it. So, like, if you have a bigger herd, you just kind of open the gate wider, you know, like you just make well, a bigger hole. That's kind of funny, because that is getting back to something I talk about in the book. You know, one of the things I, I try to argue in the early phase is that the, the cattle themselves were performing a kind of labor, and that yes. was key to value. Mm-hmm. And in, a, in an, an intense concentrated feeding operation, you're not, they're not really doing that kind of thing. Whereas what you're describing, they're, they're actually producing some of the labor and the value themselves. Yes, exactly. So that's something actually that's also emphasized in like the cattle grazing trade press, like, especially for, if you're talking about kind of intensifying your operation in that way is like, listen, they're doing work for you. Uh, you know oh interesting okay like they're doing a job and so it's your job as the human like helping them to like make sure that their effort pays off you know Uh, yeah so it's yeah it's a very different just kind of like mental relationship with the animals which is kind of interesting um and another thing that comes up all the time in that press which is going to tie into a lot of the stuff that your book was talking about is um they keep saying buying land is a defensive strategy. If you don't have a lot of money and you need to make money, you want to rent land. You don't want to buy. And so it's really interesting how you kind of uh-huh. mention, yeah, like over and over again in the book, um, like ranching, like buying all that land for the cattle was a place for money to just go. Like it, it was a way to park money in land until it was time to sell it into development, which is, you know, really consistent with what they're saying about that as a defensive strategy. I see. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I also, it's made me think a bit differently about like the return of this as, as a large scale strategy today where, where these big ranches are being used basically to, to keep, to store capital over time. Yeah. Um, and how people kind of related that to the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't know like how valid this is, but I kind of see this happening like it's right after the Civil War, like you mentioned. So prior to the Civil War, the big destination for both like Northern and uh, European capital was slavery operations. Um, like, um, so you know how today in the economy, like mortgages are a huge part of like the economic underpinnings, right? Yep. Um, like they get securitized, they get traded around. They're a big part of the global financial system. So there used to be slave mortgages. Yeah, so finance and slavery is a big cutting-edge kind of field now. Yeah, which is good, because we need to understand, like, how all that happens so we cannot tumble back into it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so, like, there, there's a reason that economic system lasted for as long as it did. Um, so, but after the Civil War, that wasn't a place anymore. So, kind of how I see it, like, because I've, I've worked in tech startups as well. Um, uh-huh. You've got a whole bunch of people with just way more money than they need, right? So they need to park it somewhere. Um, 
you know, like, I mean, you could have $40 billion in your checking account, but that's kind of useless. So there's just, particularly in times of great inequality, like right now or in the Gilded Age, um, you had a lot of people with just tons of money lying around and it, like, it needed a sponge to get soaked up by. So when slavery was still going on, that was kind of like the destination. And now that's over. Okay, where are we going to put it now? So, like, that's right around when the cattle boom starts and people start, you know, like, buying all this land and, and speculating in cattle. And a really fun feature of if you're kind of like the preferred sink for extra money to go at that time, you're going to wind up with a speculative bubble. So, I know right. you, you mentioned that in your book. Oh, that's really interesting. I think, I mean, I think that makes sense. And that also fits right. Another place a lot of capital in that bubble is coming from is Scotland and Mm -hmm. and to some extent, Great Britain in general. And they have an excess of capital that is being poured all over the place. I mean, this is part of imperial expansion for them is looking for new investment markets. And one of which ends up being these kind of U.S. resource frontiers. Yeah. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, my book obviously is not systematic in its study of, of, of capital flows and, and Western finance, but yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. It was like, it started out as beef and then it turned out into like a, a financial history. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't get too bogged down because, you know, there's not, I mean, I actually think I give, there's a really good book called Bankers and Cattlemen that's pretty old now, mm. but I kind of, I don't, I could talk a bit more about how all the finance worked, but I got more interested in kind of the, the commodity process, but it's a really important part of the story. I'm going to write that down. Bankers and cattlemen. Yeah, I'll send you the, the citation That'd as well. That'd be amazing. Because uh, I don't remember the author's name right now. It's uh, But it's a, it's a, it's pretty good. It's yeah. old. Yeah, I'm just kind of like obsessed with like the financial system underpinning it um, because I'm a scientist. So my position in agriculture has always been, hey, you want to do this thing? You want to do it effectively? Here's how we do it. Um, but then the more you get to see, you're like, oh, this is really... There's a little bit more arbitrage going on than actual desire to make things. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so, futures really also start to, to develop that. And, you know, they're not that relevant to my story. Because yeah. They, they weren't in use yet for cattle, really. Yeah. Goodness. Um, yeah. There's, I don't know. There's so much um, kind of at the core of U.S. agriculture industry that's really all kind of being built at this time. So it's it's a really great book. Um, <laughs> I was just, but thank you. I don't know. Like, you're just going through it and you're like, oh, my God, that explains that. That explains that, you know. Um, oh, that's good because yeah. I didn't know all the relevance, so I figured it would. Hopefully, <laughs> these insights could be drawn from someone who knows about it a bit more. The contemporary debates, right? Yeah. Well, I, I feel like every book there's there's twenty bajillion different directions you could go, so you have to kind of pick your battles and stuff. But um, yeah, like for sure, like this really kind of tied a lot of stuff together for me. Um, we should talk about the growth of the meat packers. So, I mean, I think the key development is, I mean, I like to think of it a bit, this could be overstated. So the key changes, if you think from consumers, mm-hmm. from the, say, 1850 to 1900, is abundant, cheap beef, yeah. relatively sanitary. <laughs> and that was achieved through an enormous amount of struggle and violence, but it was dominated by these kind of firms headquartered in Chicago, uh, known by, there are a different number of firms at different times, but basically known as the big four. Mm-hmm. Um, Swift and Company, Armour and Company, Hammond and Company, and Morrison Company. Mm-hmm. And they basically become national and, and soon global players. And the way they do it is basically 
developing ways to very quickly process an abundance of cattle that are centered in Chicago's Union Stockyards. And they basically do a revolution behind the scenes. They don't want consumers to know what they're doing. So what they do is they seek to, to, to kind of displace traditional wholesale butchers, the people who kind of initially take apart an animal. They used to kind of operate regionally around the peripheries of the country's cities. Now all of that wholesale stage is going to be done in Chicago. They innovate, they invent the, some of the earliest assembly lines, or in this case, disassembly lines. And then they used essentially spatial arbitrage operating in a variety of markets to kind of get low prices from ranchers and exploit the prices they pay from ranchers. And so it's a story that involves the railroads, involves butchers, ranchers, but it all adds up to Chicago firms dominating this food chain. Yeah, very cool. Um, so it's really interesting because, you know, like the meat, or excuse me, the beef industry was really the first time that a livestock industry consolidated in this way. But in the time since then, we've had the same thing happen to um, chickens, turkeys, pork, you know, yeah. uh, pretty much everything. It's, so this is my personal thing in agriculture is uh, I think outside agriculture, we talk a lot about how um, it's because of agribusiness, it's because of bad policy. Um, but when you actually work with a lot of farms, number one, you see a lot of good things that are going well. And number two, you see the dysfunction up close and personal. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you kind of go, I, I get how this could happen the first time, like how the industry could catch you by surprise like this. Um, right. and wind up being consolidated by the Packers. But, you know, the second, third, and fourth times, maybe we should have seen it coming. Um, so that's, I don't know, I have some mixed feelings about that. Like, you know, um, just about what it means that it happened. Uh, anyway, yeah. that's, that's a... No, I think, I think you're right. I, I mean, a big part of what I'm trying to understand in the book is, is why there is a tendency for this kind of control and dominance. I think, I think for the, the meat Packers, I think the key things they do is A, a process of abstraction, mm -hmm. right? So they want to deal with the living animal as briefly as possible. Yeah. And so they just want them to be prices in a book that mm -hmm. then they can compare between Kansas City and Chicago or mm -hmm. Chicago and Omaha, whereas the ranchers are kind of left holding the bag because you show up at the stockyards with your herd. Mm -hmm. It's expensive for you to move them. And mm -hmm. so they can't abstract in the same way. Right. And then I think that the processors are able to rationalize in ways that if you actually work with living organisms, you can't. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a tendency to do this, a tendency that is tied into certain questions of efficiency, that there right. is the centralization does produce a lot of value. Mm -hmm. uh, it has huge problems, and I think political solutions and political organizing, as we as I talk about in my period, are, are necessary. But there's a, there's, a, there's a reason why this ends up being dominated in this way. Right. So... Let me. I don't. Want, I don't want to say pushback. This isn't a pushback. But let me. Let me pull up an alternative look at things. Um, so yeah, a big thing. <laughs> a big thing that your book covers is okay. So when ranching started out, at first, uh, ranching originated as a corporate enterprise. It was like a giant land speculation thing. So right. there is millions and millions of dollars, at least in today's money, coming in from you know all over the U.S., overseas, buying land and cattle. There's millions in that in, in 1880s money, too. So it's nice. a lot of money. <laughs> nice. So there's, like, basically limitless amounts of money pouring into this. Um, mm -hmm. Now, if I'm thinking I've got this supply chain, we're going to start with mm -hmm. cattle, and then before people eat, like, I can't drive it to New York City and have people walk up and take a bite out of it. Before it's a useful product, there's this supply chain that's got to go a lot of steps. Right, yeah. There's this whole rest of the supply chain. I'm going to only invest in the first one and a half steps and expect it all to work out for me. So we have, that's crazy, you know? Um, yep. So we have, again, this is the first time kind of a, a big livestock um, 
growth and industry happen. So I can kind of see how they might not think we also need to take care of the, the later part of that supply chain. Um, uh-huh. But if you stop and think about it as an investor, uh, again, you've got this giant supply chain. And these folks had experience with supply chains. Like the plantation system all over the Caribbean was a huge, you know, um, for all its other issues, it was a big supply chain puzzle. Um, you know, you can't just grow sugarcane, you've got to process it. Right. You can't just grow tobacco and indigo, you've got to process them. So it's not like this was their guys, like it, this was not these guys' first rodeo with egg commodities. Um, so they're pouring all this money into one end of the supply chain. And they're not taking any caution with the rest of it at all. Like, they know there's all this processing. Uh, they know that there's tallow and gelatin in these cattle as well, and they're not taking any thought on, and like, hides and everything. And they did nothing to capture the value out of that. They just left that to somebody else and thought it was going to turn out okay. That's bullshit. <laughs> you know? And so it's, I don't know, like, it's, it's really kind of narrated as this story of, like, this horrible thing happened to family farmers. Well, number one, it wasn't family farmers. They were corporate ranchers. And number two, they had the money to take care of that, and they did not. So it's just, I don't know. Um, as a supply chain, like, nasty person, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> it's kind of like, there's, there's more to this story about there was very clearly an opportunity to seize here, and they let it go. Well, let me, let me talk about some of that, because I think that is really important, and I think there's a lot to that. I mean, yeah, the first, obviously, is that, so after, to, to wrap up my point about the ranching boom from before, yeah. after the ranching boom, these kinds of corporate, big corporate ranchers go out of vogue mostly for a mm-hmm. while, and things are on a, on a rel- relatively smaller scale. Yeah. But they de- ranchers in the 1890s, through, in some ways, the present, develop an ideology mm-hmm. that is very explicitly not anti-capitalist, but kind of non-capitalist. Yeah. Say, you know, it's not a business. It's about non-capitalist family. capitalism. That's totally a myth. Obviously, <laughs> that's what I'm dissecting that in the book. Yeah. Um, now, it is true though that, that the timing of that that bust in in the kind of land and cattle company is important to the story because mm-hmm. they they start to go bankrupt right when they start to be thinking about different parts of the supply chain. Right. And some ranchers in the 1890s and late 1880s try to think about getting into the processing thing a bit, right. but they're a little bit too weak, and, and some of their attempts to do that are basically choked off by the Chicago meat packers. Right, because by the um, time they started thinking about it, it was too late. Yeah, so I mean, I guess maybe I'm agreeing with you that it's, it's, it's a bit too late, and they kind of, they kind of dropped the ball in, until the very end. Um, but maybe some of the broader kind of agricultural ideology helps explain that. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a self-understanding that runs contrary to that for the non, the people that aren't the largest actors. And, you know, maybe the largest actors were more just about getting a quick buck and just didn't think about it. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Like, again, I just, I feel like there's a lot of kinship between like the previous slavery investment, like the plantation investment Mm -hmm. and cattle. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. I need to think about that. Yeah. And like, it's, there is this whole ideology around like the slavery system about how like it's, it's primeval and it's anti-capitalist. I'm like, you're buying and selling people. It's completely capitalist. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, I mean, a lot of good work recently is all about how capitalist it is. Right. Yeah. And so there's kind of this mythology of like the non-capitalist capitalism. And I'm like, that feels like what's happening here too. Like it feels like, again, maybe even a lot of the same people or certainly the same like school of thought, like just diverted all the money from the plantation system into cattle. And they just kind of took the same mental baggage with it, except not the supply chain knowledge. It's crazy. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know that if there are specific connections between people, but certainly the ideology is, is in parallel. Um, now, I mean, the one thing I, I would be curious to hear your thoughts about is, you know, this, I think ranching in many ways is an unstable and unpredictable process because mm-hmm. it's a natural one mm-hmm. or not, not net, but like, you know, ecological mm-hmm. and 
in a way, it kind of makes sense if you want a stable food production system to have it divvied up the way it is kind of from the moment of my story in that processors are, are, are even bigger, they kind of dominate. And so a lot of the risk gets offloaded onto ranching. I'm, I'm curious if the people who actually were involved in ranching had moved into processing, if that would have really been viable in light of some of these trends we think about with kind of ecological risk, etc. Yeah, and that's that's really a fantastic question. Like, there's different scales. Like, ranches, like, anytime you're growing food, like, the farm and the processing scale really differently. Yeah, um, exactly. But, like, at least in the produce industry, and this is not universal through the U.S., but in the California produce industry, a lot of how they handled that was um, they formed co-ops, and I'm still kind of looking into how that co-op formation uh, yeah. Yeah, process happened, but... Um, Number one, I think the thing everybody kind of understands about co-ops is they pool what all these farms grow so they can bargain for better prices. But also what they do is, like, they do the processing. Like, they take it from, like, hot, dirty fruit in bins into, like, cooled, clean fruit in cartons that are ready to go to a grocery store. So they do that. And I imagine that's pretty complicated, more so than I'm imagining as a non-expert. Yeah, you know, for produce, it's pretty straightforward. For for animals, it's a it's a lot more intensive, right? Um, so that's what they're doing on the produce side is they form producer co-ops to kind of handle that, mm. like to kind of bridge that gap between the field and the marketplace. Um, and that's, I think a lot of those co-ops were forming within a couple decades of when all this beef stuff was happening. Mm. Um, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm curious. About, I mean, one thing to just add on this point is, you know, because the meatpackers end up controlling the supply of refrigerated rail cars in the United States yeah. because the railroads initially don't want to take the risk of trying refrigerated shipping. Yeah. So once you get fresh fruit and vegetable distribution chilled, mm-hmm. then meatpackers actually control a lot of that trade because it's all yes. happening in their rail cars. Yes. Uh, so, so I'm curious how it ties in. Yeah. So according to my inside source, who is Chris Sayers, um, mm-hmm. Uh, he is a lemon and kind of other fruit grower down in Oxnard, California. Um, you can find him on Twitter at, at Petty Ranch. Um, oh. <laughs> he's great. So he grows a lot of stuff. He's, you know, in a multi-generational farm operation. And he's also on the board of, like, three different fruit co-ops. So he knows the stuff, right? Um, uh, yeah. And he was saying that a lot of these co-ops basically got formed by the railroad companies because the railroads are like, we need stuff to ship. Uh, <laughs> let's let's wow, develop. interesting. I don't know anything about this, so I'd be curious. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's the history as I understand it now. That's one of those areas I want to poke more into and kind of look at contemporary records and see how people at the time talked about it. Um, but he's like, yeah, so these, these co-ops all formed like maybe 100 years ago. So all the folks in them today, uh, we know how to operate them, but we don't know how to start one because that was all done 100 years oh, ago. Oh, okay. Um, but there's definitely a formation process. The railroads took a leading role because they needed stuff to ship. Um, and they had like all these land grants. I think that was a big part of um, right. how that all got started. So California fruit farming uh, never had kind of a small family farm independent phase. Like, they've always been integrated into global markets. Um, And it's funny because everybody's like, ooh, it's corporate. Um, But they're family run. And because they've kind of always been living in that environment, they didn't have to make any kind of transition at any time and how they approach their farming. Um, So they're really viable under modern conditions, which is interesting. do Do you think there's something different about animal processing, though? Not really. I mean, it's seasonal. Like, they're both seasonal. Um, yeah. They both have a high labor turnover. Um, you know, like, the only big difference is that cleaning a slaughterhouse is more work. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That, that's really the one big difference. 
So. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. That's something I'm worth, worth thinking about. Yeah. Uh, I think, though, I mean, one of the problems now, of course, is that, you know, that moment was missed. Yes. Um, and, of course, now they, the processors in beef at least have so much power that it's hard to... Mm-hmm. To, but to, to contest it. Now, I'm curious that we were talking about poultry briefly. I mean, one of the things I think about is the, essentially the contract poultry system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pioneered here in terms of not, not wanting to actually deal with the living animal, but wanting to kind of control it as an input. Mm-hmm. And so I see a lot of parallels that would make it very hard. But the, the co-op thing is, is an interesting kind of comparative alternative. Yeah. Yeah, it's an alternate model. And I think a big part of why they've had a hard time getting started is because it takes a lot of capital. And yeah. everybody involved has to, like, with throwing in the capital, has to be exactly on the same page in terms of where they want it to go. So it's just a lot easier if one big party has the capital. And I think that's why maybe California co-ops went together the way they did. is just because it was railroads basically kind of running the whole show. Um, and it's kind well, of... That makes yeah. sense. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so, like, just the way... Th- there's some really interesting parallels and differences between the contract poultry system and how California fruit co-ops work because like on paper, they're exactly the same. And yet in real life, the fruit growers, I mean, they're competitive. They don't like the prices they're getting. Right. But um, it's not dire poverty like it is with the chickens. And so it's funny because they're again on paper, they're working under the same quote unquote corporate egg, but the outcome is so different. And so I have so many questions that is an area that I need to like really dig into. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, one of one of the things I, I I think about is like you know how much of the of, of the way this all comes together is a product of scale centralization, some of these tendencies that we talked about, and how much is just contingent historical accident, mm-hmm. and you know can where it you know is the structure of this foreordained? I mean, I think that the the labor was certainly exploitative in the story I tell in Chicago, yeah. but I think actually it was even more exploitative just because ideologically the meatpackers hated labor, and uh-huh. so that bit. I think is in a way contingent, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, um, again, a lot of U.S. labor relations were basically, again, born out of the slavery era. And uh, if you read textbooks about how the Industrial Revolution happened, it's like, oh, it started with ladies spinning yarn in their cottage and they would sell it down to the village. And then there's like this putting out system and then textile mills happened. And that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> right, that's its own kind of mythology. Yeah, like it started in slavery when we had like the sugar and tobacco and indigo processing on the plantation. And again, like there was transatlantic investment in that. And like, who are the people investing in cotton mills? They're people who are also investing in plantations. Like they're the same people. It's the different ends yeah. of the supply chain. And so they really adopted a lot of like those labor management strategies from the plantation into wage labor as close as they could in accordance with the law. Um, that was just their mindset. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, you just, you look at, at meatpacking and you're like, yep, that's more of the same. And I, I think, and I think part of it is that then attempts of workers to organize, at least in my story, mm-hmm. right. That many of the people who are working in slaughterhouses in, in the late 19th century, they're recent immigrants, often mm-hmm. from Eastern Europe. They're viewed as, as kind of, uh, a foreign, but B as, as a source of kind of socialist ideas that are, mm-hmm. that are, you know, read by the public as antithetical to what America is. Mm-hmm. And so there's this fear of not just of improving their lot, but a total revolution or transformation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like agricultural labor is so, so interesting because anytime there's an opportunity to just forget that people are there doing things, they'll use it. It's incredible. Um, there was kind of kind of a similar story in in Appalachia. There was some kind of like um, philanthropic movement 
I think in the in the early 20th century about how we need to save Appalachia. Um, oh yeah, and they try to evict <laughs> people basically. Well, yeah, I, I mean that was probably happening at some point. But the the thing I was thinking of was like poultry processing. They were like, we have to build poultry uh, processing capacity so they can have a market for their chickens. And so there was this co-op, and they raised all this money from philanthropists like up in New York, and they used it to build a slaughterhouse for the chickens and, and market them. And these slaughterhouses are kind of like in Appalachian cities, and they're staffed entirely by poor black like urban wage laborers. And so, like, oh, interesting. The, yeah, the whole project is done with this intent of like we need to save small family farmers, and it's really done like on the backs of like poor black folks who most of whom wound up in the hills in the first place because someone stole their land, um, which is just so fascinating. Like, there's there's really. Um, we're preoccupied with farmers to the point of forgetting the whole rest of, again, the supply chain. And I have to wonder how much, like, um, you know, that underinvestment in processing capacity, like, there's all these people who are throwing money at farms, and then they forgot that they have to process anything. And I just wonder how related that is. Like, we have this obsession with, like, the agrarian ideal, and we're not thinking about it. Even when we're treating it like a business, we forget, no, for real, it's a business. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part. I mean, obviously, the processors also are invested in, in that account because, like I said, they want to remain behind the scenes. So all their marketing trades on this kind of agrarian ideal, mm-hmm. um, you know, because no one wants to think about what's happening in the slaughterhouse. And so I think they, they prop that up a bit because they profit from it. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to me how like the biggest pushers of kind of the agrarian family farming image are the corporate people. Um, exactly. <laughs> um, there's a one of the original like OG mommy bloggers is a lady named Ree Drummond. Mm-hmm. And uh, like number one, social media genius. Love it. Fantastic. <laughs> I got to learn from that then. Yes. Number two. Um, so her kind of narrative is like, I was a city girl and I had this fancy city job and then I fell in love with a cowboy um, and I married him and I moved to his ranch and, you know, I thought I was giving up so much, but, you know, it's it's just great. And so she did a blog to kind of keep in touch with family and stuff because she's in the middle of nowhere in Texas um, right. and then like just turned into this smash hit first ever mommy blog. Um what goes unsaid in this blog is that her husband is not a poor, simple cowboy. <laughs> her husband is like the heir of a giant cattle and oil dynasty. Yeah, um, there you go. Yeah, they have like bajillions of acres, all these oil wells on like Osage land. So there's got to be a story there. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, that goes completely unsaid. Um, and like, again, like as a mommy blogger, like nobody wants to hear like, so I married this heir of an oil dynasty. No one wants to read that. Um so she's got this mommy blog built on like kind of the cowboy wife image, which to kind of go back into stuff you cover in your book, there's the difference between cowboys and cattlemen. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The cattleman is like the tycoon who owns the cows. The cowboy is like the poor agricultural wage laborer who actually has to be with them. <laughs> yeah. I try so. to contrast cattle. I call them in some places cowboys, but other places cattle workers to try to explore that tension. Yeah, yeah, and so there's there's like this cowboy mythology um, that completely just again like agricultural labor erasure. Like this is a really weird genre of that is like they're mythical figures who are just out there on the plains with cows for no reason. You're like, no, these are farm workers. 
you know. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting too. I what I find interesting is that they had that myth was important even at the time. So I talk yeah. about this this famous 1883 cowboy strike, but one of the things I find interesting is the way they criticize their employer mm-hmm. is by deploying this myth for well-known famous cattlemen like they talk about how charlie goodnight is like uh you know a guy just like them as opposed to these new businessmen from the east or from scotland and so they're playing with that myth self-consciously even as cattle workers yeah i don't know like the cowboy thing is fascinating to me because like you you meet a lot of who are kind of into it for the aesthetic but but like uh but people who actually work with cattle and it just I love working class people who are paying attention because there's a lot of us um, and they kind of see what's going on. You'll get that a lot here in in Fayetteville because it's a military town and there's a lot of people who've been in the service and they have some opinions on the stuff they saw. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they brought me in on honor and country and I was like, wait, I'm just here to protect commercial interests. This is bullshit. Um, you get a lot of that. Like this is a town yeah. that's very heavy in that and you see a lot of that you know, in kind of like the cowboys as well. And you bring it up as they're like, they have traditional cowboy songs and they have satire cowboy songs about how some of these cowmen are full of shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's definitely something they're conscious of. And, and I mean, one, one thing that's indicative of this, of this, an important part of the story is, you know, the only, the only cowboys I really had good sources on are basically a, often the better educated ones and B the white ones. Mm-hmm. And they're actually a minority of the people who are cattle workers in, in particularly in on the Southern plains. Yep. And so we get a particular picture of what we imagine when we see a cowboy and that mm-hmm. sort of conflates with ranchers, but it all serves a kind of overall political effect or purpose. Right. Yeah, and a lot of the folks who are working with cattle now um, are migrant laborers, but you never see them on Instagram. The people doing it on Instagram (laughs) are like, uh, you know, or like working in the rodeos, like being a rodeo cowboy, like that's that's pretty white. Um, And a lot of it comes from like growing up on a ranch. So you're a cattleman's son, you know, like you are a cattleman. This is just like the larval phase of cattlemen. <laughs> you know, like that's horrible. Yeah, yeah, that's like the cowboy cattleman relationship now, and like we're just kind of forget about all these people, like kind of doing a lot of the real work on the ranch. Um, if they have employees, they're probably from Mexico, and we just don't talk about that. Well, I think one. I mean, I guess that the, the interesting thing is like what, how this this myth about family or about that's not really that it's not a business ends up of course justifying the status quo of a system against any sort of criticism yeah and then and then it but then it becomes interesting too because some criticisms of the system are also founded on that myth mm-hmm. and so you have to say well actually this is a business and 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 as with anything we have to think about how you engage with a business that has you know negative consequences without kind of mythologizing it as a not a business right yeah that's that's been the struggle you know, for me, I found like as an agriculture professional is, um, you know, number one, when you're talking to the public, you know, they kind of have a lot of myths and you're like, no, this is, this is actually how it works. This is why things are done this way. Um, and then also when you're working with clients, sometimes there's things that they're doing that are not helping them business wise, but they make sense from the mythology standpoint. And that's interesting. Yes. So kind of getting like finding ways and you can't just tell them you're doing this because of mythology. You're like, it's <laughs> nice college word, young lady, but this is how we do it around here. Um, so you kind of like, you kind of have to like inception people, like you have to kind of get them thinking it's their idea, but there's such a, there's such a deep attachment to this is why we do things, even though it's obviously not making money. Um, a huge part of it 
I've found is that certain things on farms and ranches are considered women's work. Um, often like bookkeeping, sales, invoicing, like all the paperwork, office, uh. clerical type stuff. Yeah. Um, are women's work. So ideally in any business setting, if you're making business decisions, you want at least like some input and authority from the people who are like watching the finances and know what's making money and what's losing money and maybe what we should do about that. For sure. But if you're living by the mythology of the independent frontier, <laughs> yeah, uh, women don't make the decisions. Uh, women help out. And I don't think anybody goes like women are subordinate. Um, in fact, if you talk to them, they talk a great game about how much they love, honor and respect their women and, yeah. and they help out so much, you know, <laughs> there's like women in authority. They will go to incredible lengths to never put women in authority, like in the same sentence. Um, everything women does is do is helping out. There's no decision making. There's no authority. And but but we love them and they're, and they're the greatest. So it's really interesting to me. Like, that's one of the ways that the mythology really interferes with actually making a living. So, oh, yeah, that is interesting. And also just because obviously if you start from my studying of, of this kind of business in the past, I mean, it was so much about the numbers and was run according to those kinds of principles. But then the, the ideology doesn't ever stress any of. Yeah, I think it might be like a family versus corporate kind of ideology thing. They're like, look, we're not corporate. We don't do that here. You know, yeah, it's we're going to treat everything like it's an extension of household chores and you don't like run the numbers on when you do the dishes <laughs> you know that's crazy talk but then you know as you mentioned like some of these operations now they have that kind of identity but they're they're massive mm -hmm. i assume the people who are running it are, are aware of that uh you know it just depends on the operation like some of them yeah like a lot of them yeah but also a lot of them like they're massive because they made money somewhere else like maybe oil and the ranches where they park it so they're not trying to make right. a buck yeah that's true <laughs> And I mean, just the, the, the ongoing play or how, I guess, cow-calf operations have transformed into such a conscious kind of segment of it today, mm -hmm. as opposed to in, in the 19th century when it, it was certainly there was a version of that, but there wasn't an understanding of it on exactly those kinds of terms. Right. Yeah. It was kind of fun to read your book and watch like the cow-calf stalker finishing system kind of like developed. And that was one of those things yeah. that I had a lot of questions about. So I was like, ah, oh, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of what they piece together, and I think it leads to this kind of specialization that, that has remained so persistent in how we produce our beef, unlike kind of any other animal product. Right, yeah, and, and to some extent, like, it does make a lot of sense. Like, if you're going to keep cattle year-round, you want to do it in a place where it's warm, you don't want to do it, like, in Montana, because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a few people do it, but it's not a big business up there, because you have to cut so much hay to feed them through the winter, it's just not viable. Right. Oh. I mean, I found that strange at the time, but you know, because I'm not, I wasn't an expert on on the biology. But they, you know, I kept reading these ranchers saying, "Well, you, you know, you send them up north for a year, and they'll gain good weight before we sell it." So that's a, a if you own ranches in both places, you do that, or b you just sell for that market. Yeah, and I thought, oh, that's so interesting. And so learning about how the system came together, I think, was a big part of writing and researching the book. Yeah, well, and, and disease was such a huge thing, um, and you you kind of came across the tick fever. Um, yeah. Like, it's just when there's that much disease pressure, the animals are spending so much time fighting off stuff that they can't really gain weight. So, Well, that's kind of what I wondered about is, you know, they had these stories that, oh, they gain they gain weight so well in, in, you know, when they go up north as if that was just some added bonus. And then you think, well, didn't they think about maybe that it was a sign that actually things were un unhealthier where they were starting? But <laughs> no, like, They were definitely in love with, like, their 
their rustic Texas Longhorn cattle, and you, you kind of get the feeling there's some awareness that they just handle better under difficult conditions. So I don't know if they necessarily, like, you kind of talk about it, the process that it took for people to figure out, like, oh, these cattle are carrying a disease. They're not showing symptoms, but they carry it. Right. Um, and it comes from a tick, and they're dropping infected ticks, and they're making well, all these. Well, tick other- fever is, I mean, if you, if you, because my goal was to try to get inside the mindset of yeah. not knowing what it was. Yeah. And you realize it's extremely mysterious if you can't think of the idea that there's these ticks right. that are, like, you know, the vector. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, that was a whole puzzle. So, like, I think there is definitely some awareness that conditions are more difficult down in Texas and down further south. I don't think they they knew exactly what they were up against. They just knew that there was something going on. Um, Did you ever run across something called screwworm? Screwworm? Mm. We, no, no, they didn't talk about that. But, I I mean, I've, I've, I think, did we talk about it maybe on Twitter somehow? Uh, no, not us. Not the sources do not yeah. do not talk about screwworm. That's so interesting. Um, because <laughs> it was pretty dramatic. Um, <laughs> do you want to talk about screwworm now? Content advisory: The next two minutes or so of the episode are unsafe for work graphic descriptions of livestock parasites. So if that's not your bag, go ahead and fast forward about two minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Okay. So screwworm is a flesh-eating maggot. So, (laughs) um, and these used to be really common, like down in Texas and kind of like across like the deep southern U.S. Um, Maybe I was missing it somehow, or they had a different name. They might have had a different name. Yeah, it might have had a different name. Um, So anytime, like they don't eat just like on bare skin, but if you have like a cut or like a graze. yeah, or like an umbilical scar because you just got born and you're a newborn calf. They will set up house on that and they'll kind of like start eating, you know, they'll just kind of start feeding on like, you know, bodily fluids kind of seeping out of it. But as they get bigger, they get more aggressive. And um, then they turn into flesh-eating maggots. And uh, <laughs> it was so I think good. you're going to like lose some listeners as a result of this. Oh, they've heard worse. Um, <laughs> so, um, but like, so this is a big deal for um, for for anybody involved in the cattle business because like newborn calves were hugely at risk because of the umbilical scar. So it was a big issue with calving, uh, branding, castrating. Like if you're doing tags on the ears or something like that, like they can, they can show up then. Uh, so the USDA put together this huge screwworm eradication effort, which is why we don't have them anymore. Um, they bred sterile males. Cause it turns out if you raise them just a little bit warmer than they're comfortable, um, the males will be sterile. Like, they won't be able to reproduce. And screwworms, yeah, like, they only mate once, so if you can release a bunch of sterile males, they will be gone. They won't They won't be able to lay eggs for new generation. So the U.S. had this big, let's raise them and eradicate them program. Uh, they kind of beat them down south of the Texas border, and were like, cool, we're good. And then they came right back. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, so the USDA had this giant fly breeding program, and then they're like, okay, we have to push these pieces of shit down past the Isthmus of Panama and just hold them steady there. So that's the status quo to this day, is we have like all these sterile male fly breeding stations. Um, and we release everywhere to make sure they stay south of the Isthmus of, of Panama, because we're like, if we let them have a bigger neck than that, they're just going to come back. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be... I mean, this kind of like 
pro process of state organization to solve these kind of agricultural problems is 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 kind of emerging at this time. You know, yeah. they're starting to study these things. Yeah, um, and and I'm like, are we going to work on eradicating them south of that ever? Because that means there's still a thing down there. Like, yikes. Um, that does seem like an issue <laughs> would be an issue in Brazil if they if they have them there. It does, doesn't production. it? Yeah, like, and apparently the rearing facilities for these have had some labor issues. Like, I just, I wanted to learn more about the labor history of these because you're worrying, you know, they're in sweltering heat. They have to be body temperature, just like a little bit above inside uh, these facilities. And they eat rotting meat. So you have giant warehouse full of, like, trays of rotting meat with flesh-eating maggots crawling all over them. It smells terrible. Um, you know. <laughs> so they've, they've had some labor issues, which is fascinating. I want to know more about that. Um but that was, I don't know, it was, like, kind of a big deal, and I'm wondering if they called them something else, but, like, it was... And they'd, they'd attack humans every once in a while, too, if you had a cut that didn't get cleaned out. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if they if they also just kind of viewed it as, as, as yeah, I mean, part of the part of the business that they didn't even bother remarking on. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. The, uh, you would think it would come up in these, in some of these, uh, like, rancher conventions, although I guess it's, you know, it's, like, Texas fever came up because, tick fever... Because it was being communicated to new populations, and so it was a big fight between ranchers and places that didn't have it, and ranchers yes. that did. Yes. And so that was why it would come up as a political thing that someone could solve. Social drama. Yeah. <laughs> and this also, by the way, this tick fever, this divided ranchers a lot at a time yeah. when they could have been organizing politically to address some of these things we were talking about with the growing power of, of the beef processors. And so yeah. one of the things is that ranchers were many and, and scattered. Yeah, because it was really kind of pitting different groups. Like the, the northern cattle rearers who didn't have it were like these stinking southern nasty people are coming up with us. Yeah. Uh, bring or if you're running a feedlot in, in southern Illinois or yeah. a proto feedlot, you're not going to be happy. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, the whole, like, you know, uh, work together or compete thing is this big tension in agriculture because you have these commodity groups where they're all competitors with each other. But like you said, um, they need to pull together on a lot of stuff like region-wide pest eradication. Uh, like, hey, guys, maybe we should pull together and build our own slaughterhouse. That's something you need to collaborate on, even though you're nominally competitors. Um that's interesting because, you know, the meatpacker insight was we get a lot more profit if we don't compete with each other, but we put pressure on downstream or mm -hmm. upstream. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a huge tension that exists in agriculture. So it's just kind of was fun, really kind of illuminating to watch how it played out over time. Yeah, that's what I like about history. I mean, right, we can we can look at dynamics. Obviously, if we study dynamics now, they're better for understanding issues today, but you can't, mm -hmm. like, seeing how they unfold kind of in real time is something that by starting in the past you're able to do. Right, and you can kind of go like, oh, I've seen this happen before. Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, so the beef industry, you know, kind of in that vein, uh, really owes its existence to the fact that four meat packers in Chicago decided we're going to make everybody eat this or, like, <laughs> we're going to make this available to everyone. Um You'll get livestock crazes in the U.S. every once in a while. Like, uh, there was an ostrich and emu thing, you know, five to ten years ago. No, I vaguely remember that. Yes, there was the alpaca thing. And you'll you'll kind of wind up, again, it's, it's almost exactly like the cattle bubble, um, where, you know, the, some people start selling alpaca breeding stock or, like, ostrich breeding stock, and it's a big deal. And they're like, this is going to be the next big thing. It's going to be the wave of the future. <sighs> um <laughs> They talk of the value. I saw an alpaca like stud sell for two hundred thousand dollars once, and I was like, "Hmm." <laughs> I wonder how he's doing now. Right? You're like, this doesn't feel viable. Um, 
And it's really interesting because you kind of always ask them like, okay, so what's your market? And they're like, well, people are going to buy the wool. Really? Where are they going to turn it into thread or yarn? Someone's going to do that. Okay. Um, so if you're going to invest in the alpaca business, why not invest in doing that? You know, <laughs> well, it is soft apparently. Yeah. It's, it's good stuff. Um, or like in with ostrich again, like the big bottleneck is okay. Everybody wants to raise ostrich, but nobody wants to slaughter ostrich apparently. So you have, <laughs> you know, like you have yeah, a, that makes sense. Yeah, like you have a bunch of people like they're kind of building up this kind of I don't say pyramid scheme, but just like price bubble, you know, in say ostrich or emu or alpaca breeding stock, and nobody's really paying again any attention to that last half of the supply chain because. Like, I don't know, like, it's not sexy to bring up at a cocktail party. I don't know what the logic is. But that ties into this, the myths about the agricultural production in general. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, it's not the same as with, say, beef, but it's this attraction of this idea of farming and and husbandry. Yeah. And then as a business option, but not, you know, the unsexy bit of the processing. Yeah. Well, that's that's really the cornerstone and, like, the capstone that it takes to turn something from this is a fun hobby livestock endeavor to like, okay, this is an actual business. Like we're actually going to switch some from beef to ostrich because it's more sustainable. Well, you can't do that unless they're processing, but the, just the rearing industry, like as it is now, like for all these commodities really kind of feels more like a fandom than it does like an industry. Like just nobody's thinking again about that end of the supply chain. And it's just interesting to watch. Well, maybe it's a different relationship to risk, though, because you know if you're if you're building or you're developing facilities to process these kinds of currently exotic animals, yeah. it's it's a riskier proposition because you're you could be stuck with this operation that then goes out of fashion if you're not confident in consumers. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe you can just make this short term investment. Yeah. But I agree, it does. It's more of like a yeah a fandom or an obsession. <laughs> yeah, and it's I mean, like yeah, you're kind of stuck with the infrastructure, but you can make like. I work in food safety, right? Okay, you can make like a very small slaughter facility, like one or two shipping containers. And if the ostrich thing doesn't work out, you know, like obviously that's not high volume, but you start with like niche stuff. And if that doesn't work out, you can convert it to like just normal poultry pretty easily. Um, So like, yeah, you need a little bit more money than most folks have lying around, but a lot of ranchers have more money than most folks have lying around. And it's just not something that anybody thinks to do. Um, Yeah. I think that makes sense. Well, I mean, I, I, as in your explanation for why it makes sense. Yeah, like there's just a weird blindness going on and it drives me nuts. <laughs> so again, like you, you kind of lay out how it happened in beef and this was the first time that that kind of like livestock bubble burst, like solidifying into, you know, a meatpacking thing happened. Um, so the first time it happens, you're like, okay, it caught everybody by surprise. No one's ever seen this go down before. But again, the second, third, fourth, and, you know, seventh times it happens, you're like, there's some kind of willful blindness going on here. But you seem you seem to be, based on the earlier conversation, talking about, say, cooperatives as that alternate model that could have been organized there's, at a different stage. Is that right? Yeah. There, well, there's all kinds of alternative models. Cooperatives are one of them. It's just like nobody thought, let's find any kind of alternative model. They're just kind of like, someone's going to take care of slaughtering this, and that's fine. And, and nothing bad is going to happen as a result of that bottleneck that doesn't belong to me. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's I think that's true. And I mean, it's interesting because these these uh, these meatpacking firms in Chicago at this time and into the 20th century, they they dominate. I mean, this is in, in the story as well. That I talk about so much. They dominate pork, mm-hmm. but yeah. they don't really get involved in poultry so much. Yeah, that and they do later, later, in a way, indirectly. But you know what I mean. And that's interesting because then that sort of develops in parallel. Yeah. So there would it wasn't like it wasn't like that was kind of choked off immediately. Right. Um, although I'm no expert about the history of poultry. 
Yeah. So I don't know. It's just, it's really interesting. And, and the processors that started doing this, a lot of them came from a family farming background. So it's like, even I think Swift grew up on a family farm in England and yep. became the giant poobah. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of watch people talk about agriculture as if there's this family versus corporate like binary. And yeah. um, like a lot of these so-called corporate giants are family operations. And there there's not like, I think people think there's one, there's some point when you're lying in bed and like the ghost of corporate farms future shows up at the foot of your bed. And they're like, Whoa, you're corporate now. Like there's no moment when that happens. It's a slow slide from one to the other. And, um, just in my experience, like the corporate operations that are the shittiest are the ones that were shitty back when they were tiny family farms too. And they never had an attitude adjustment about, right. they, yeah, like we're big and we need to be responsible now. So I guess one question though, is in, in some ways, this, this mythology about farming and just agriculture in general, I mean, it serves the industry very well. I mean, so yes. in some ways it, it's very effective for certain things, but obviously it's also probably leading to the kind of situation we have today mm-hmm. where like it becomes harder to address some of these concerns. Yeah. Um, and that's something you see actually a lot in the North Carolina pork industry. So we're the number two port state after Iowa. And, um, yeah, there's some kind of like quasi feudalism arrangement going on where I think like you're pretty familiar with, um, you know, have what we call an integrator, which is like the company that, you know, breeds the chicks, makes the feed, um, buys them back and processes and slaughters and sells them when it's done. And then there's like the farms that basically are kind of like the custodian in the middle where they, they raise them from chick to adult um, right. or from like piglet to adult. Um, so I, I think we're pretty familiar with that relationship. Somehow in North Carolina, I think there's a, there's a tier in the middle. And I think that's a little bit more common than folks realize is there's some kind of like big family farm that handles a lot of the subcontracting, um, I'm unclear on exactly what the arrangement is, but I've seen it in berries and some other fruit commodities as well. Um, but there's kind of like a middleman family operation that is giant. <laughs> it belongs to a lot of country clubs and yells at the governor a lot. Um, so anytime uh, in the North Carolina, when they've talked about, hey, we need to regulate these swine manure pits and just other environmental stuff. Because every time we have a hurricane, these things overflow. Over, oh, over. yeah, yeah. I've heard about that. <laughs> yeah, so it's like a constant issue. And we've had three hurricanes with flooding in the last three years. It's like a big deal. Um, anytime anyone talks about regulating, like, there's this screaming about but family farms. Now, these family farms are all subcontracting for these corporate operations. So there's, like, right. there's effectively really no difference. If you want to talk about corporate farms like the practices, well, it's family farms that are doing it because they're the subcontractors for these corporate farms. So, even people, that message serves their interest. That kind of political yes, line. Yes. So people talk about like, well, we need to have laws that apply to like corporate farms. We'll leave the family farms alone. Well, you can't do that because they're the same people. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and you know, for the last several decades, anytime that's come up again, it's been completely deadlocked by but family farms. But now that a Chinese company bought Smithfield. It is a yep. lot harder for the but family farms argument. So I think we may finally start to get some regulation of our swine manure problem thanks to it getting bought by China. And that family farm argument, yeah, like it's it's still the same family farms doing it, but China's ultimately profiting somehow, so now we're willing to regulate. So that's interesting to watch. 
Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I try to think about in the book is is kind of how is 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 deal with the tension between moments that, from our vantage or from one's vantage, like look the same, like mm-hmm. whether it's owned by a Chinese company or owned domestically, or like ranching versus essentially bison mm-hmm. hunting, and like contrast drawing parallels between with people looking at people who see them as radically different and mm-hmm. how that kind of empowers the system. And so I think that that makes a lot of sense that, you know, this, this kind of seemingly arbitrary change from one vantage point ends up being very powerful politically. Yeah. Oh, you know what we need to talk about really quick before we're done is mm-hmm. severalty on native reservations. Ah, okay. Yep. Yeah. That's a big deal to me because I found out like, in at least one other instance where that was happening, and probably all over the place, but there was a reservation or like native lands up in Canada um, where Cree people started farming, and it was at the dawn of wheat growing when they were automating it. And so they kind of pulled their resources. They're like, oh, we need to farm now? Okay, we can do that. Pulled the resources, got mechanical equipment, and like did a bang up job right away. And the Canadian government was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> We're going to take your machines. You need to do this with hose and shovels. Like, you need to do this by hand. Oh, wow. Yeah, and they did the severalty thing. Like, we're going to give each individual family plots, and you have to stick to your plot. There's no more of this sharing nonsense. We don't do it this way. Um, yeah. And it's interesting because it says to me that deep down, we've always known that homesteading is bullshit, you know? <laughs> mm. Interesting. Wait, how so? Uh, that you can't really get ahead. Like, the whole goal was to, like, break Native Americans resources. Oh yeah, I got that. But how yeah. do you how do you think that shows that they knew that? Well, I mean, like, you know, like people are farming automated, and we know that they're going to build wealth. That's why they were anxious. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah I think that's true. That yeah. makes a lot of sense. And it's like everything that colonial governments have done with Native Americans has been geared towards making sure that they can't resist, that they don't have resources, that they're yeah. impoverished as possible. So if there's a push to make sure that they're homesteading by hand instead of using automation. I think that reveals a lot about what we really know and believe about how effective farming by hand is and homesteading is. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, a big part of it, the interesting thing is that in, in a way, policy produces this kind of poverty, mm-hmm. and then that poverty becomes a justification for the policy. Yeah. Right. So they say, we're going to do things as we see fit on your behalf, and, mm-hmm. and that people struggle as a result and then they say oh they're poor so obviously they're not good at doing this we have to do it for them right Um, and and in the book i I do i there's one bit i cut this down somewhat but Mm -hmm. i compare like debates about whether they should you know quote unquote make indians farmers or ranchers Mm -hmm. with debates white americans were having about what areas were suited for for ranching or farming and Mm -hmm. what you notice is right when they're debating it among themselves these kind of white uh essentially people moving there mm-hmm. it's all about the specifics of the land the specifics of the weather and then when the the government's debating this on reservations it's, it's just all weird social theories about development and progress mm-hmm. about ostensibly the exact same issue mm-hmm. yeah um well and you kind of mentioned something too that was really interesting about how a lot of the native territory that the u.s government decided okay this is gonna be native territory now in oklahoma was immediately between these cattle ranges like settler run cattle ranges in texas and the railheads in kansas and so it was just like a setup you know (laughs) yeah i mean it was a disaster and and also just that there's it's such a kind of the people who who moved to what then was indian territory now oklahoma they're in such a marginal situation that often these kind of exploitative leasing agreements for using their range mm-hmm. is kind of the best option possible right and so they 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 have no option but to take this kind of dependence yeah situation yeah um 
And just, I don't know, like, I guess maybe this is where a lot of, like, the old cowboy and Indian mythology came from, is like, okay, we, we, we put native peoples in this small area right between, like, the cattle, like, the ranges in Texas where cattle are born, and then the place in Kansas where, you know, they meet the railways, and so all the cattle drives are happening right across this, like, you know, um, I don't know, just like, uh, the decision No, that makes sense, process. and I think, you know, I would read all these accounts where, the cattle trailers and often the cowboys would talk, some of them were self-aware, but a lot of them would just imagine that, that as they described it, a begging Indian they would come across. Mm-hmm. And I would read these descriptions of these interactions and I would, and, and some more self-aware people who were writing about the time. And you'd realize that it's really more like a toll. Like yeah. They're yeah. crossing someone's land. A herd of, you know, a thousand cattle is going to cause a lot of damage, drink a lot of water. Mm-hmm. And these people are very savvy about, like, getting essentially payment for it. And they mm-hmm. argue, you know, that first they, they try to give them some, you know, not well-off dying animals. And then they argue about it and they want more or less. It's, mm-hmm. it's a negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. Again, if, like, how, again, like you mentioned, like, some of the cowboys are pretty self-aware about it. And other ones are, like, they kind of see, like, the warden who's the toll administrator. And they're like, oh, I can't believe this guy's begging, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts about, like, you know why it is that some people were more self-aware about that and other people are just kind of like very, very biased in, in what they see. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know why some people seemed, they, the people who were self-aware was always a much smaller number. Yeah. And uh, maybe I'm, I'm latching onto them for their alternate perspective, yeah. but yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't really know why. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, again, I see that a lot in agriculture. Like you have, there are some folks in agriculture who are very perceptive. Like, like one guy told me again. He's he's at Wolf Pickle on on Twitter, um, you know. And he said like agriculture is is wild and it's woolly, and there's always a mark. And if you don't know who it is, it's you. Uh, you know? Hey, that's that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, like in, in general, right? But we kind of have this mythology that like ag is the exception and it's like the wholesome place. And he's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you almost wonder how much of like that wholesome image is promoted to to um, expedite the finding a mark process, you know, and just kind of like anesthetize your mark while you're sucking them dry. Um, yeah. So you well, it certainly is not wholesome in my period I'm writing about. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of unwholesomeness going on. And then like you have a lot of folks in ag who are very aware of that. And they're kind of like negotiating that terrain with a lot of savvy. And like, I love those folks because they're so freaking smart and you can learn so much from them. And then there's like, there's a lot of marks in agriculture and they have no idea that they're marks. And you're like, on the one hand, I feel kind of bad and on like really bad. And on the other hand, like you're doing a lot of damage with your ignorance, you know? And I'm just like, mm, yeah, it's, it's rough. Like, what do you do with this? Come on. Well, it is funny. Cause like, you know, you read when you're reading these sources for me as a historian, I get through like 95% of them that aren't very self-aware and that's good for building up the understanding of the baseline. And then I get the one that doesn't fit with all the others. And that yeah. kind of helps me kind of triangulate exactly how to make sense of this entire story. Right. Um, but it is weird, right? Because I develop these assumptions that like people are shaped in their views by their time. I see all these people fit this mold, but then I'm like, well, how did this one person, like what is, what is going on here? Right. Yeah. And that's, I don't know. That's, it's such an interesting parallel with just um, conservative culture and politics in general is what I, f- I was raised very conservative and um, in any given congregation, like kind of the discourse is very conservative and, you know, like women should do this and blah, 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 blah. Um, but when you talk to people kind of one on one, like if you get to know them and you have a relationship, like little doubts will come out. And but it's very much understood that you don't talk about that. And yeah. so there's all these people who think they're the only one who uh, who is wondering. 
you know about this? Oh, that makes me sad. It's it's really sad. Yeah, that's appropriate. <laughs> um, and so, like, it's it's this culture that keeps people very isolated in their fears and their doubts for the purpose of promoting a larger narrative and kind of getting people to to kind of string along with it. So again, it's so interesting to talk to the people who are seeing through it because. Like, not only do you have to have the savvy to see through it, but you also have to give no f**ks to admit that you see through it. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's like, not only do they have to see it, but they have to be so disengaged from what the community is trying to accomplish with the bullshit. Or not even the community, but kind of like the, I don't want to say the overlords, like the, this discourse is always kind of set by the more powerful people in the community. Yeah, there's always right? someone who's interested serves, for sure. Yeah, exactly. And everyone else is kind of so in their thrall, and you can't just have people believing it. You also have to have people isolated and afraid and ashamed in order to keep that narrative going. Well, what's maddening as a historian is if you think about it, right, most people have, might have these doubts, they don't say them. Well, that means they're never really going to write them down or they're not going to be evident. And mm-hmm. so it's so hard to find that. And that's why those people who have written it down become so important. Right. Yeah. And I just, you know, like the one cowboy who's like, oh yeah, this dude is a pretty tight negotiator. I liked him. You know, I'm like, <laughs> what's your story? Who are you? Um, I want to get you and that toll administrator you were just talking to. I want to get you all together for coffee and just like pick both of your brains because I feel like this would be fun, but they're both dead. I know, and sometimes you only have like a page or two or like one letter and you just think, oh, there's so much to this person. Right. And they're all that's dead. That's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, that's fun, but also it's frustrating about being a historian. Right. Yeah. Can't ask many questions. They're all dead. So. Yeah. Well, uh, then I don't have to deal with the consequences of having written a book about them. So I guess that's I'm thankful for that. That pays off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like, I don't know, like, there's, um, there's, again, as someone who kind of works in agriculture, um, I feel like there's really, again, there's this discourse about how um, the reason agriculture is suffering and that farming is hard is because of weather and it's because of big agribusiness. But when you're down at the micro scale, again, once you get relationships with people and you get a chance to talk to the outliers, you're like, there is so much more to this story. Um, There's just that's interesting. Yeah, there's so much bad business planning and just like bad decision making that happens at the farm level. And the sustainable ag discourse has never been able to acknowledge that because number one, farm culture covers it up. (laughs) And then number two, like there's kind of, I think, like this urban bougie need to have some kind of wholesome spiritual center. Like we need to have a somewhere else where things are okay. And for whatever reason, we've chosen agriculture as that. Yeah. Um, And so like, not even people like even people who are not involved in agriculture are so like emotionally and spiritually invested in that discourse that you can't tell them anything. Well, I've hoped to try to suggest why they're so spiritually invested. I guess it doesn't really help you solve any of the issues, but you know, I think part of these myths are why people are so invested in that vision. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, like as long as you have people talking about it, then it becomes, I think a little bit safer for people to kind of start giving their own viewpoint. They're like, Oh yeah, I've always seen this one thing, you know? Um, yeah, you can kind of crack the ice a little bit and, and hopefully help people kind of feel a little bit more trust in themselves. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. It's a mess. It's just it's messy. Thank you so much. Like this was super fun. Um, you know, hey guys, you should buy his book. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I think I, I hope that you know people enjoy it and, and view it as something that informs some of the thinking about stuff today. Yeah. Well, so great. thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. That was so much, and it was all so illuminating. I want to give Josh a big tip of the hat for really shedding a lot of light on how the beef industry came together and how it ties into the history of the U.S. at large. 
His work has been so helpful for me where I'm looking at the present state of things, how it's done today, and wondering, how did we get here? Because if you can't really plot out how it happened, then you can't plot your way out of it either. His book just came out. It's called Red Meat Republic, A History of the U.S. Beef Industry. And full disclosure, I did get a free copy because Josh is super nice, but I was literally about to click buy on the website before he contacted me anyway, because I would 100% pay retail for this book. It is that good. There's so much good history in there. Again, can't recommend it enough. I also want to add an addendum about poultry farming. We talked about exploitative poultry contracts, which most folks following the food industry are probably at least a little aware of. There's actually a lot more going on under the hood there. Poultry farmers who raise broilers under contract for the big poultry giants are, on average, actually one of the highest income groups of farmers in the United States. Yes, really. There's some funky stuff going on with the pricing setup that puts the bottom 10, 20, or 30% of poultry growers in a real bind. It's called the tournament system, and that deserves a whole podcast on its own because there's just so much more going on there. Anyway, we're a bit off the beef trail here, but you can find Josh on Twitter at at Josh Spetched. Linked to his Twitter and his book are in the episode notes. And thanks so much for listening.